0: Good morning. As you know, we're in the Gospel of John. We're in John chapter 8, which is basically a long, long conversation. It's a conversation between Jesus and the religious leaders, which includes the Pharisees. In this conversation, Jesus has claimed to be God incarnate on many occasions. He claimed to be the great i am the name the ancient name of god from exodus chapter 3 he claimed to be the man who bears the name of god first given in exodus chapter 3 he claimed to be the light of the world light is the symbol of god one of the symbols of god in hebrew bible he claimed to be equal with god this is just by way of review of where we are in the in the chapter He's claimed to be equal with God. He said that his judgment is identical with the Father's judgment. If you've seen me, Jesus says, you've seen the Father. One to one relationship. Not kind of, sort of close, but identical. It's not that Jesus, it's not that the Son is the Father or that the Father is the Son. It's that there is such perfect unity between the two that when you see one, you see the other. When you see Jesus, You see the Father. This is what he has claimed in terms of these assertions of deity. Our passage today begins with verse 25, but we'll start with 23 for context. John chapter 8, verse 23 reads like this And he was saying to them, You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. In other words, I'm from heaven, I'm from the realm of truth. And righteousness and holiness, you're from the world, which is the realm of deception and unrighteousness and rebellion against God, because the world is characterized by the world's ruler. Remember, Jesus called the devil the ruler of the world. And so it is understandable, it is logical that the world is unrighteous, that the world is wicked, that the world is full of deception. Because the world is characterized by its master. Remember when Adam sinned, Adam handed over rulership of the world to the devil. He's the ruler of the world, little r. God is still the ruler, capital R, the one who is sovereign over the universe, including the world itself. Keep reading in verse 24. Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. As we saw last time, that is, another, that is a claim to deity. This is the claim of the I am. The he there in your Bible should be in italics. And so the way you would read this in Greek is unless you believe that ego in me, that I am, you will die in your sins. In other words, if you don't believe that I am God in the flesh before you die, we don't know when we're going to punch our time card. My first job was at Arby's. I was 16 years old, and we had time cards. You know, you stuck the time card in the in the big clock, and it goes, dunk. You get there at this time, and you leave, and you stick the card back in there. It just goes, dunk. And the card shows, arrived at this time, left at this time. We don't know when we're going to punch our time cards. But we're all going to punch our time cards. The mortality rate among human beings is 100%. 100%. And Jesus is saying, if you punch your time, if you die without believing that ego in me, that I am, he's claiming the ancient name of God for himself, if, if you die without believing that I am the Messiah God, then you will die unforgiven. You will die in your sins. And therefore, your time to get forgiven by grace through faith will have expired. Because if we die without having trust in Christ, then we, are in, we, we enter eternity unforgiven. And that is our state. That is our, our condition for all of eternity. And that is why Jesus, who loves his enemies, who is preaching to people who hate him, the Pharisees despise him, they will want to kill him before the chapter's over. They've wanted to kill him before. This is why he preaches to them the truth that they must trust in Him for, their forgive, for the forgiveness of their sins and the receiving of eternal life. And He urges them to do it before they die, because once they die, it's too late. Once they die, then they will enter into eternity unforgiven, eternally separated from God, and that will be their status forever. Keep reading in verse 25. So they were saying to Him, Who are you? Who are you, they asked. Earlier in the conversation, they understood Jesus' claim to deity, and they wanted to seize him. In verse 20, right, it says they couldn't seize him because his hour had not come, meaning they wanted to, but they couldn't because God restrained them. Jesus is in complete control of everything, all of it. He's in control of all of the events. Please don't think that Jesus is helpless, some sort of hapless guy who's kind of just dragged along. Oh no, the Pharisees got the best of Jesus. That's not the Jesus of the gospel. That's the Jesus of Hollywood, but that's not the Jesus who is. He's in complete control. And he will move events so that he will be in Jerusalem six months from now, and then he will allow them to arrest him. And he will allow them to brutalize him. And then he will allow them to nail him to the tree because this is the plan of the Father. But don't misunderstand. Jesus is in complete control. They wanted to seize him earlier, but they couldn't because earlier they understood his claim to deity. Here they seem a little confused, a little unclear. But by the end of the chapter, there will be no doubt in their minds and they will pick up stones to try and kill him. Keep reading in verse 25. Jesus said to them, What have I been saying to you from the beginning? What have I been saying to you from the beginning? Since the beginning of his ministry, he's been saying the same thing about who he is. He said it over and over, many different ways, in many different settings, in many different contexts, but the same thing. I am God in the flesh. I am the Messiah God, but in their hardness of heart, they do not believe. Verse 26, I have many things to speak and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true. And the things which I heard from him, these I speak to the world. Jesus had much to say about these religious leaders. They're under judgment because of their unbelief. And whatever words Jesus says, they are true. Because they are the words of the Father, he says here, which he has heard don't miss this. This is another claim to deity. Jesus is saying, I've heard the words of the Father. I heard them in heaven, which is where I came from. And now I'm communicating them to you. Jesus didn't hear the Word of God from a man, right? I understand the Word of God from the apostles in the New Testament, the prophets in the Old Testament, Moses. The the human writers of Scripture, who were moved, of course, by God the Holy Spirit, he's the ultimate author of Scripture, capital A, because he moved these human writers to record the infallible Word of God. But we know the Word of God because we've heard it or, or read it from human authors. This is what I intend to do today, is communicate to you that which is in the text. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, I've heard the word of God directly from the Father. Before any of you existed. Because He says He came from heaven. I take this as a reference to eternity past when there was just God. To eternity past when there were no angels, when there was no universe, when there were no humans, there there was just God. Because God is from, as we saw in the 930, from Olam, to olam the hebrew for from everlasting to everlasting jesus is claiming to have a direct communication having heard the words of the father in heaven this is another claim to deity then in verse 27 we get a note of explanation from the apostle john they did not realize john says that he had been speaking to them about the father Verse 27, they did not realize that he, Jesus, had been speaking to them about the Father. The Pharisees don't believe that Jesus is God incarnate. So when he speaks about the one who sent him, right? When he says, he who sent me, they don't know who he's talking about. What are you talking about? He who sent you. Does some guy around the corner send you over here? Just like we saw last time with respect to Jesus' Father, when he spoke, last time we were together, we we studied the verse where he spoke of his father. And they say, who's your father? They're thinking of his human father, who's actually his adopted father, Joseph. Because the religious leaders, they're spiritually blind. Their unbelief has made them spiritually blind. They live by sight and not by faith, and therefore they're blind Uh, That didn't make sense, right? They live by sight and not by faith, and therefore they're blind. No, I, 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 I said what I meant, and I meant what I said. They're spiritually blind. They live by what they can physically see, so they're blind to what they cannot physically see. The Scripture never contrasts faith with what is not true. right? Mark Twain said, Faith is believing what you know ain't true. No. That's not what the scripture contrasts faith with. It doesn't contrast faith with what what isn't true. It contrasts faith with what you can't see, with what is not visible, what you can't see with your eyeballs. But these religious leaders are spiritually blind, so when Jesus talks about the one who sent me, they don't know who he's talking about. And when Jesus talks about his father, they think he's talking about some human person. Their unbelief produced blindness, spiritual blindness. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 2.14. But a natural man, a sukikas man in the Greek, a natural man, an unspiritual man, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Faith is the prerequisite for spiritual insight. That's why the writer of Hebrews says, without faith, it is kind of tough to please God. Is that what he said? Without faith, it is impossible, not possible, to please God. In a moment, Jesus will say, everything that I do pleases God. Everything that I do pleases God. The writer of Hebrews says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. And we must come to God in faith. Now, not faith in faith, right? Some people say, oh, he's a man of faith. She's a woman of faith. Faith in what? Right? Faith in Buddha? Faith in the Maharaji? Right? The, 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 The spiritual guru guy? No, that's misplaced faith. The Bible requires us faith in God. That passage in Hebrews 11 that is impossible to to please God without faith, it goes on to say, we must believe that He is, and He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. That's the gospel message, right? We believe that He is God in the flesh, the God Messiah, Messiah God. And that if we trust in Him for the forgiveness of our sins and the receiving of eternal life, sure enough, He's going to reward us. Reward us with eternal life as opposed to the eternal death that we're born with. Reward us with a place in His permanent, eternal kingdom of peace and righteousness and justice forever. As opposed to the kingdom of darkness that we are born into. And so the Pharisees do not have faith in Jesus. And so... They are spiritually blind. They cannot perceive what he's saying. It's blah, 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 blah. Right? They just... Boing, boing, it just bounces off. Because they approach him in disbelief. So his words, words have no spiritual significance to them. Verse 28. So Jesus said, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he... And I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. Just like before, the he here is in italics. The he here has been added by our Bible translators because the he is, you know, when you're reading through the Bible and you find something in italics, the translators are telling you that they've added that word, and so they put it in italics. They're not trying to be sneaky. They put it in italics so that the reader knows, oh, okay, they added that. Usually they add it because they're trying to smooth out the reading. Sometimes when you're translating from Hebrew into English or Greek into English, sometimes it gets kind of kind of staccato and kind of, kind of choppy. And so they'll add a, a word that might not be in the original language, but they want you to know because they're being straight up about it. They want you to know, so they put it in italics. I think here... In John chapter 8, when, the, when our Bible translators add the word he, he, I think it's actually not that helpful, because it detracts from the claim to deity that Jesus is making. This is another I am claim that he is making here. In the Greek it reads, Then you will know that ego in me, that I am. They'll know that he is the I am when they lift him up. Because when they lift him up, they'll know he is who he said he was. When he says lift up, he means two things. When he refers to him being lifted up, he means two things. Number one is physical. Number two is spiritual. The physical thing that he's referring to is the crucifixion. Because when the Romans crucified a man, they lifted him up. Right? They'd never heard of our constitutional prohibition on cruel and unusual punishment. They loved cruel and unusual punishment. We didn't like what King George did to us, so we put it in our constitution that our government can't do that against us. The Romans loved it. They were experts at cruel and unusual punishment. And so what they would do when they would crucify a man is they would nail him to a tree, the hands and the feet, and they'd lift him up. Now, it's not like many of those artistic renditions. A high cross I mean, that, that, that's, that's a lot of work for, for somebody to dig. I mean, you know, that, that's rock there. I, I, I suspect some of y'all that have been to Israel probably had a, have a better sense than me, but my sense is that that soil there is pretty similar to ours, kind of rocky. Rocky, or, or if it's Houston gumbo, what we call it in Houston, just clay after, you know, two inches of soil, it's just clay in Houston. Whatever it is, you don't want to have to dig very low. And so they dig a hole for the, 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 the Roman soldier or they'd, or they'd conscript some, some local to dig the hole for the beam. But what they would do is they'd just dig however deep they need to get so that the, 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 the beam is where, where the man's feet are going to be is higher than the ground because you don't want the man who's being crucified to be able to have his feet on the ground to rest. He's up. The man's feet are up, nailed into the beam, but he didn't want it, you, don't, you don't want it on the ground because the way you die in crucifixion is asphyxiation. Your hands are out, the weight of your body, the weight of your upper torso is compressing your lungs, so you've got to push up to, to breathe. So lifting up, when Jesus refers to lifting up, he's talking about the physical reference to how the cross will be lifted up. He's going to be lifted up above the earth. Maybe it's a foot, maybe it's two feet. It's not that high. They only need it high enough so that the man who's being crucified can't rest his feet. The second element of this phrase, lifted up, is a spiritual element. It is the concept of spiritual exaltation or spiritual glorification. Because in the crucifixion, His work on the cross, the miracle of His resurrection, and the authority of His ascension exalted Jesus. Jesus was saying, when you lift me up, you will know. You will know. Now, He's not saying that everybody's going to believe that He's Messiah. He's not saying that the crucifixion would mean everybody would trust in Jesus. He's saying that His crucifixion, His resurrection, and His ascension would be His final display of who He was, at least His final display during the first advent, during the first coming of Jesus. So, Jesus' words, we know, are at least partially fulfilled on the day of Pentecost, Remember the day of Pentecost, which is 50 days after the resurrection. The day of Pentecost in Acts 2, Peter preached a sermon in Jerusalem. Remember, the, the apostles are there in Jerusalem, and they're being mocked. They're teaching the Word of God in Jerusalem. This is the city where Jesus was brutalized and crucified just 50 days earlier. They're being mocked by the crowd. And so Peter stands up and preaches a sermon to the crowd. And there are three elements that are the core of the sermon in Acts chapter 2. The crucifixion, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 2, verse 36, reads like this. In terms of the end of Peter's sermon, therefore, he says, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified, Peter is speaking to the crowd of Israelites there in Jerusalem. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart, it says in verse 37 of Acts chapter 2. And then it goes on to say 3,000 souls were saved through that sermon. 3,000 Israelites were saved through that sermon that had as its core the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the ascension of of Jesus Christ, even on the day of the crucifixion itself. Jesus' words from John chapter 8, that they will know when he is lifted up. Even from the day of the crucifixion itself, there is fulfillment of those words. You remember the Roman officer who oversaw the brutalization of Jesus, who oversaw him nailed to the tree and ensured that he was dead on the cross you remember the centurion right from mark 1539 when the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way he breathed his last his last he said truly this man was the son of god it's fulfillment it's fulfillment On the day He was lifted up, it's fulfillment 50 days after He was lifted up, and it's fulfillment 2,000 years after He was lifted up. Because the core of the Christian message is the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus Christ. One day, everyone will acknowledge this. Everyone. The believers, the unbelievers, the mockers, those who trust in Christ... Paul put it this way in Philippians 2.8. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's the crucifixion. Verse 9. For this reason also God highly exalted him. That's the resurrection and the ascension. Jesus ascended not just to kind of go someplace. He's not on Mars. He's not not somewhere in the the Milky Way. He is on Mars. He is in heaven, seated with authority. Seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, the writer of Hebrews says. The position of authority. This is why Jesus talks about being lifted up. When I'm lifted up, then you will know that I am. Then you will know ego in me. Paul says here in Verse 10 of Philippians 2, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow. Excuse me, I missed the end of verse 9. And bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. The word therefore Lord is the Greek word kurios. Kurias. Guess what the Hebrews did when they translated Hebrew Bible, the the, the Hebrew text, into Greek, two or three hundred years before Christ, it's called the Septuagint. Guess which word they used to translate the unspeakable name of God? Yahweh, the covenant name of God, the great I Am. They used the word kuriaz, kuriaz. What Paul is saying is that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Yahweh, is God, is the I Am to the glory of God the Father. To the glory of God the Father. Jesus submits to His equal. God the Son submits to God the Father even though they are both equals. God the Spirit submits to God the Father even though... They are both equals, because God is triune. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And the focus is to bring glory to the Father, even though they're each God. But the focus is the Father, because there is a, a, even though in essence they're all God, there are different functions within the Godhead. Keep reading in verse 29 of John chapter 8. And he said, And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. There's the statement. And I must tell you, this is an audacious, an audacious statement. It is a claim that no man in his right mind would make no ordinary man. Buddha didn't make this claim. Muhammad didn't make this claim. The Maharaji didn't make this claim. Jesus claims to be sinless. Everything that he does, he says, is pleasing to God. If one of us says, everything I do is pleasing to God, if I said that, my family would laugh me out of the room. That's a joke. But Jesus stands up and says, which one of you accuses me of sin? I'm here. This is what he will assert to be utterly sinless. This is what qualifies him as the sin bearer. Jesus makes the claim because he is no ordinary man. This is another claim to deity, God in the flesh, which takes us back as we often get back to the words of C.S. Lewis. He wrote in his book, Mere Christianity, I am trying here to prevent anyone's anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing, Lewis says, that is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sorts of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg, close quote the ultimate way that jesus pleased the father was by submitting submitting to the father's will that he go to a cross and be crucified this was Jesus' final act of obedience during his life everyone abandoned jesus everyone right john 1:11 he came into his own and his own received him not Israel abandoned Jesus. His own disciples abandoned Him. One of them betrayed Him, Judas Iscariot, and the others split. I mean, they ran. They were scattered when He was arrested. But the Father remained. The Father remained. Jesus spoke of this in the upper room the night before He was to be crucified. John 16, 32. Behold, an hour is coming, Jesus says, and has already come for you to be scattered. He's speaking to His disciples each to his own home and to leave me alone and yet I am not alone because the father is with me of course the spirit was with jesus as well but most of jesus's words focus on the father that's because both the spirit and the father submit to the excuse me the spirit and the son submit to the father's will but there was a time when neither the father nor the spirit were with jesus there was a time when The Father and the Spirit both left Jesus. It's when the Father poured out the sins of the world on Jesus, God can have no fellowship with sin. God is utterly opposed to sin. And the Father pours out the sins of the world on Jesus, or to use the language of the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 53, the Father is pleased to crush Him. It's not what the Jews and the Romans did to Jesus that gives you your salvation. It's what the Father did to His beloved Son that gives you your salvation. And this is why Jesus screams out on the cross, it is recorded, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, in the Aramaic, the language that the Hebrews picked up when they were in the Babylonian exile for 70 years. Eloi, Eloi lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why, has you, why have you forsaken me? Jesus screams out from the cross because the Father and the Spirit could have no relationship, no fellowship in some ineffable, unexplainable, difficult to comprehend way. I believe it, but I don't understand it. The Father and the Spirit and the Son were separated. The Father and the Spirit were not in communion with the Son, during those three hours when the earth went black and your sins and my sins were poured out on the Son, and He screams out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In some ineffable way, there was not fellowship within the Trinity, as there had been since eternity past. That was the only time that there was not fellowship among the Godhead. That fellowship, of course, was re- re- restored after that period of substitutionary judgment that Jesus went through on the cross. Keep reading in verse 30. As He spoke these things, many came to believe in Him. As He spoke these things, many came to believe in Him. In the midst of this conversation with the religious leaders, with the Pharisees who hate Him and want to kill Him, in the midst of their animosity and antagonism towards Jesus, in the midst of this conversation, they hurl their their words at Jesus. Jesus responds calmly, decisively, but clearly. He speaks the truth in love. In the midst of this, people are saved. People in the crowd are saved because the Jesus of the Bible, make no mistake, is divisive. He's divisive. His words divide. Jesus said, I come to bring a sword. I'm not, I'm not saying that Jesus is rude. I'm not saying that, that, that Jesus was an ugly person, ugly words, not at all. Jesus was meek and gentle. But he's also spoke the truth, and the truth is divisive, always, always. And so Jesus spoke these words and these words... Saved them, right? The people here in the crowd who are saved, they're saved because of the word of God. It says, as he spoke, they came to believe. His words saved them. The word of God cannot be stopped. It is unstoppable. The prophet Isaiah said this in Isaiah 55, verse 10. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth. This is actually God speaking through the prophet and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So will my word be, which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. The written word, the spoken word, and the living word, Jesus, remember, He is the Word of God. That's one of His names, Revelation 19. The written Word, the spoken Word, the living Word are unstoppable. Verse 31, so Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed Him, if you continue in My Word, then you are truly disciples of Mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. We should ask ourselves, are we dealing with two different groups here. I mean, verse 30 has this group that says they came to believe in Him. And verse 31 has this group that's, that is described as those who had believed Him. Some believe that these are two different groups. The first group, verse 30, is the group that's ref- that, that, that had genuine faith, true faith, real faith in Jesus, And folks who believe this say that the other group, verse 31, refers to a group who had insufficient faith, inadequate faith in Jesus. And they take this position because of the two different Greek constructions that are used to create these different English phrases. One is believed in him, and the other is believed him. Verse 30 is John's usual Greek construction that he uses for saving faith. For those who believed in Jesus, it's the verb pistuo in the Greek plus the preposition ace followed by a word in the accusative case. It's the usual way that he does it. Believe in him. John 3.16, for example, is the classic example of how John uses this construction. For God so loved the world, for God so loved the world that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Believes in him. That's the construction. Saving faith. Then verse 31 is the other construction. It's different. It's the same verb, pistuo plus a word in the dative case, without a preposition. Translated, believe him. One is believe in him, and one is believe him. And so, some people say these different Greek constructions are talking about two different people. One, believe in him, truly believed. And the other, believed him, didn't fully believe. I don't think that's accurate. I don't think that's accurate. That's an accurate statement for two reasons. The fact that we have two different Greek constructions is not significant. It's not material. Because sometimes John flips it. Sometimes John reverses it. And he'll use one Greek construction to mean believers, those who had saving faith. And he'll use that same Greek construction for those who didn't have saving faith. For example, this classic Greek construction, like from John 3.16, he uses that same construction in John 2.23, where the people believed Jesus' miracles, but they didn't believe in Him as Savior. So, so there he, he flipped the construction. He used it in a totally different context. And same thing for this other construction. Here's my point, as I kind of drill down into the Greek grammar. Everybody in here love Greek grammar? (laughs) The Greek grammar is important here because it's used by those who take this text to say there's a difference between real faith, true faith, deep faith, faith that's sufficient, and faith that's, you know, it's just... It's not strong enough. That's not found in the Bible. There's only one kind of saving faith, and that's faith. That's the real point that I'm driving at. There's only one kind of saving faith. You know how much faith you need to be saved? Just a little more faith than no faith at all. It's just either you trust, you believe that Jesus is God incarnate who paid for your sins and is your access to heaven, or you don't. If you do believe that, you are saved, and you will not go to hell. If you don't, you're not saved, and you will go to hell. It's that straightforward. Saving faith is believing what we're told to believe. Sometimes in the Gospel of John, people will believe that Jesus did miracles. That's not believing Jesus' claim of who He is. That's just believing. I saw the miracle. Yes, you did the miracle. Okay. But they don't trust in Him for the forgiveness of their, sin, their sins and the receiving of eternal life. Here's my point. We're talking about the same people. Verse 30, verse 31. The same people. This is, this, these are people in the crowd who trusted in Jesus. They were saved. And so Jesus gives them instruction here. Let me just repeat the verse Verse 31, so Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, same group as in verse 30, believed in him. If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. This is a pause. We've had this kind of this, this kind of machine gun back and forth, boom, boom, boom. Pharisees say, they say this. Jesus says this. Pharisees say this. Jesus says this as you're going through John 8. And now we get a pause. And the apostle says. In the middle of that machine gun back and forth, there are people in the audience who believed in Jesus. They trusted in Him. And now Jesus turns to them and gives them words of instruction. That's what we're seeing in verse 31 and verse 32. And so in verse 31, some people take that to mean if you don't continue in Jesus' word, then you're not saved. Right? He says... If you continue in my word, that's the Greek word meno, to remain, to abide, to continue. If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. So some people take this to mean, if you do not continue in Jesus' word, then you are not saved. They call it the perseverance of the saints. They would say, if you don't persevere in Jesus' word throughout your life, then you were never saved in the first place. This is another falsity. That is not true. It is an inaccurate reading of the text. It's a product of not understanding the word disciple. The word disciple here is the Greek word mathetes, which means a learner, a pupil, or a follower. And the Gospels basically use mathetes, disciple, in three different ways. Number one, the 12 disciples who followed Jesus, not all of whom were saved, by the way. Judas Iscariot was not saved. He's called the son of perdition, the son of destruction. The second way that the Gospels use the word disciple is for the crowds who follow Jesus and were not saved. Like in John chapter 6, where you have this crowd who's following after Jesus. They even get in their boats and they go from one side of the lake, of, uh, the Sea of Galilee, which is a big lake, from one side of the lake to the other side of the lake to follow Him because they want more free food, right? On one on the, on the northeastern side, he fed the 5,000, and they're like, wow, yeah, I love free food. And they wanted a free food guy, and they wanted a political leader. So they get in their boats, and they follow him to the other side of the lake, to Capernaum, and they're there. They're followers. They're disciples, because disciple has the concept of follower, but they're not there because they trust in Jesus. They're not there because they want to believe in the biblical Messiah, they want a political Messiah who will get them out from underneath the, the, the foot of the, of the Romans. And then there's the third way that disciples used in the Gospels, and that's those who follow Jesus and were saved. Way number one is the twelve disciples. The second way is people who follow Jesus but weren't saved. And now the third way is people who follow Jesus And we're saved. This is how Jesus is using the term in our passage here in verse 31. A believer is truly his disciple if he or she continues in his word, remains, abides in his word. The word disciple is not synonymous with believer. You can be a believer and not a disciple, and you can be a disciple and not a believer. Because some of the disciples, I don't mean the twelve, but like in John 6, they're called disciples who got in their boats and crossed the lake because they're followers of Jesus. Jesus' statement to kind of boil all this down is actually very simple. It's not, straight, it, it, it's, it's not complicated at all. It's very straightforward. If you abide in my word, madam believer, you'll follow me. You'll learn from me. If you don't, you won't. This is very straightforward. New believer, if you abide in my word, you follow, my, you, 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 you obey my word, then you'll be my disciple. You're saved. But you can either waste your life chasing after the world, not abiding in me, or you can give value to your life, which is by abiding in me, by following my word. Jesus is talking to these new converts, these new believers, and he tells them, abide in my word. Continue in my word, and then you will be my disciple. My disciple of one, he's using the third definition, one who follows me and is saved. Following Jesus' word means knowledge, truth, and freedom. Knowledge, truth, and freedom. Verse 32, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. This verse is much abused. Much, much, much abused. Secular universities have this as their motto. They have it etched in stone in one of their old buildings. The verse is used to make the point that knowing the truth frees you from ignorance. Knowing the truth empowers you with knowledge. Knowledge is power, in other words. All those things are true. Those are accurate. Knowledge is power. Knowing the truth does free you from ignorance, and knowing the truth empowers you with knowledge. All those things are accurate. It's just they have nothing to do with what Jesus is talking about. What Jesus is talking about in John chapter 8 is of a spiritual realm. It's of a spiritual dimension. He's not talking about learning stuff in the chemistry lab or in the lecture hall. He's talking about spiritual knowledge. He's saying the believer who continues in my word grows in knowledge, knowledge of the truth. What truth is he talking about? He's talking about himself. Jesus is truth personified. Remember, he said, or he will say, as we study it later in John, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is the truth. He doesn't merely speak the truth. He does do that. But he is truth personified because God is truth. If the believer continues in Jesus' word, abides in it, then the believer grows not in knowledge of Econ 101 or or Psych 201 or Poli-Sci such and such class. That's not what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about spiritual knowledge that produces intimacy with Him and freedom, freedom from sin. This is freedom that is not political freedom like a Like a constitution guarantees. The reason we are the freest country of all the countries in the world is because our founding fathers were Buddhist. No, I'm sorry. They were Muslim. They were atheists. No, they were Christians. They were Christians. And so, with that spiritual freedom, that colored how they viewed the world. Had they viewed government, for example? And so they crafted a document that we still have today. It's, it's, it's abused by many courts, often, but we, still, we have a document that is colored by their spiritual perspective, the spiritual perspective of our founding fathers, fathers, of our founding fathers. And so that correlates to political freedom, but Jesus isn't even talking about political freedom here. He's talking about spiritual freedom, freedom from sin. We'll see more of that as chapter 8 unfolds. Sin is a brutal, cruel taskmaster. The only way to escape the bondage of sin is through the consistent metabolization of Jesus' word. You must study it, you must apply it, and you must live it. That's what continuing abiding in his word means. Jesus will unpack this further in chapter 15. Now, it's important to note that Jesus doesn't say that the goal is to know my word. He doesn't say that here. He doesn't say that the goal, he's talking to these new believers, who have just been saved by what he spoke, is what the text says. He doesn't say, the goal is to know my word. He doesn't say that. He says that the goal is to know the truth. To know the truth, and that produces freedom from sin. The end game is not the study of the Word of God. The end game is not the study of the Word of God. I'm not knocking the study of the Word of God. I'm dedicating my life to the study of the Word. I'm not knocking it at all. I'm just saying that's not the end game. That's a means to an end. The end game for the believer in this life is intimacy with Christ. That intimacy produces liberty. Liberty from the lusts of the world. Liberty from the lusts of your sin nature, liberty from sin. This liberty first begins with salvation, believing in Jesus, believing that He is the I Am, the Messiah God, and then walking in His Word. Now I need to be clear about something. This analysis that we've done here, and this discussion about saving faith, and, and how some people approach faith of, you know, he had sufficient faith, but she had insufficient faith. So he's saved, but she's not saved. I don't mean to suggest that there is no consequence for sin. Because th- 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 those who take that approach, what they often do is, is they say, you must Remain in His Word. You must continue in His Word throughout your life. Otherwise, you're not saved. It's another way of saying you must persevere. I don't believe in the perseverance of the saints. I believe in the preservation of the saints. God preserves us. Your salvation is not dependent on you. Don't flatter yourself. You're not that important, nor am I. Your salvation is dependent on God. You can't lose your salvation because it's not dependent on you. If you fail, if you sin and you will, that doesn't negate your salvation because your salvation was never dependent on you in the first place. It was dependent on God. Now, when I say that, I'm not encouraging sin. I'm not, this is not a license to sin. This is a license to love. To love your Master who purchased you with His blood People think, oh, no, 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 you're going to encourage sin. No, we're not encouraging sin. We should be clear. The Bible is crystal clear. The believer who engages in sin, God's going to take out his belt and it's going to hurt. He's going to take out his divine belt and he's going to whip you. David is the prime example who is not in hell. David who committed adultery. David who moved events so that... So the the wife of excuse me, the husband of Bathsheba would be in the front lines and he'd get killed. Sounds pretty close to murder. Am I condoning those sins? No, I'm not. Serious sins. And David suffered the rest of his life. Punishment, discipline from God. Many years later. Because sin has consequences. God will punish you for your sin, will discipline you for your sin. Now, if you're a believer, does that mean you've lost your salvation? No. Does it mean you get off scot-free? It doesn't mean that either. God will take out His belt, and He will whip you, and it will hurt. But you're still His child, right? He's not like a parent who says, I'm done with you. You're no longer my daughter. What? Well, of course, she's always your daughter. He's always your son. If, a human, if we know that it's wrong for a human parent to, to say, no, you're never my child again, we know that intrinsically we know that's wrong. Well, God doesn't do that. You're His child. Will you fail? Yes. You're not going to be sinless, but you should be sinning less. I think it's important to make that distinction. Because that's, that's often the, the tomato that gets thrown. Well, you're just encouraging sin. I'm not encouraging sin at all. You're going to get your comeuppance for your sin. Don't you worry. You're going to get, you're going to get spanked by God, and it's going to hurt. But discipline is different than salvation. Right? The writer of Hebrews said, says, He skins alive, he whips, he scourges every son whom he receives. Discipline is actually evidence that you're the child of God. When God disciplines you for your sin, because if He didn't care, He wouldn't discipline you. The parent who doesn't discipline the child, the Scripture says, doesn't love that child. So, we have a situation in the text that is clear with respect to the distinction between salvation and the the distinction between the believer who doesn't lose his salvation. How much faith is needed to believe? Just a little more faith than no faith at all. How much faith is needed to be saved? Just a little more faith than no faith at all. If anybody's here without Christ, without hope and without eternal life today, we want you to know that God loves you. God loves you though you are His enemy. We're born the enemies of God. We're even conceived the enemies of God in sin. David said he was conceived in sin. He wasn't saying that his mother was had an adulterous affair, or she was a, a prostitute, or anything sinful. He's saying, sin begins at conception, and so we are born, even conceived sinners, the enemies of God, subject to His fierce wrath. God can't blow off our sin. He can't say, "Ah, eh, it's all good. I, you know, I like you. You're, you're you're pretty good, Alex. You know, you're not you're not perfect, but you're not that. You're not as bad as that guy." That's not how it works with God. See, we want to compare ourselves. We find somebody who's worse than us and say, I'm better than him. And you probably are. You probably are. But God looks at us and He says, you're all sinners. All of you. Remember what Paul said in Romans. There are none righteous, not one. Not one. We're all born sinners under the wrath of God. The phrase wrath of God is used over 600 times in the Bible. God is a God of mercy and love and compassion, but make no mistake, He is also a God of wrath and judgment and righteousness and holiness. And so if you have not trusted in Christ, the simple act of faith, not faith plus this or faith plus that, simple faith, not complicated, simple faith. You have to trust, but in order to do that, you must humble yourself. You are not worthy of God's eternal kingdom. You are a sinner by nature as am I. That's who we all are. We're born the enemies of God. We are all the enemies of God until we come to Christ. And so all you have to do is trust in Christ and you stop being His enemy, subject to His wrath, subject to the eternal lake of fire, and you become His daughter or His child like that. You say that's too easy. You're right. I think it is very easy. But because God loves you, he made it easy for you. Incredibly painful for him. In fact, he gave it all. Jesus gave it all for you because he loves you. All you have to do is trust in Christ, and that's it. There's no reason to wait. If you're not saved, if you haven't done that, do it today because you have no guarantee on tomorrow. I'm available afterwards if you'd like to visit. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have recorded it for us. We thank you that you sent your son, Jesus, God the Son incarnate, to die for us. We praise you for these things. We worship you for these things. We ask that you help us honor you through the study of the word, through the digestion of the word, through living it out. We ask that you help us abide in Jesus' word. Continue in it because we recognize as your children that we live a life that is wasted, that is in the devil's realm if we refuse to continue in your son's word. So help us do this, please. Yet we do not ascribe to you any of our failures. We recognize that it is our rebellion when we fail to do it. We pray these things in the name of His majesty, Jesus Christ Himself.